reading to us from Hebrews chapter 12. And as soon as Alter's finished, Nigel's going to come and uh, explain that word to us. Thank you, Alter. Morning, everybody. Morning. Okay, so reading this morning about the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet, trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who hear it beg that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want to think this morning about another cultural message. It's our last one. It's the topic of security. Security. Where, where do we look for, for security? We uh, are getting used to these kind of hackneyed phrases. We live in a unique time. That's the, uh, the first one we've heard lots of in the last few months. We live in unprecedented times. That's one that's probably the most used. It's a buzzword for what's happening in the times that we are living. It's the winter of discontent that we'll be uh, burning our own furniture, and if not, I'll be burning your furniture, just to keep warm. But joking aside, it's a serious time in which we live. There's the clear fuel shortage. There's the energy bill crisis that, that's looming that we'll be paying for into the months to come. Food shortages is now a real concern as well. And empty shelves that you can see on the screen. And that's all in the context of a pandemic that no one has ever lived through before. It's just an uncertain time in which we live. And there is in our hearts something that has been uh, stirred up in the last 18 months at least, which is our need for deep and lasting security. I mean, can you remember back, uh, hopefully this won't bring back too many sad memories, of the time when you learned to swim? I don't know if this is uh, you on the uh, left-hand side of the screen, but for some people, swimming and learning to swim, I see a few smiles amongst us, is a terrifying thought. You have times when the, the armbands were taken off or uh, the swimming teacher or the parent kind of dropped you in and it was sink or more swim time. In that moment when we're in the swimming pool, away from the security of the side and the teacher and the buoyancy aid, we all long for something to, uh, to reach out and grab hold of. We long for a place of security. We long for a place of buoyancy. We long for something 
to stop us from sinking. And that's just in the swimming pool. But all of us are in the swimming pool of life without getting too twee. We long for something to hold on to, something that is stable, something that is permanent, something that is lasting, something that is secure, real security. Not just petrol that's in short supply. Security is in quite short supply as well. I mean, the amount of uncertainty that we've all experienced in the last 18 months has been unprecedented, right? And uncertainty is not just a, a real everyday occurrence, but it's also, it's wearying and it's wearing. We've all just got fatigue from the uncertainty of our life in the last 18 months. And it's exposed in my heart, and maybe yours too, that, that longing for security, but also that idol, that desire, that need to be in control. We all like being in control, I think. That's why there's this lovely famous poem by Henley called Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We want to be in charge. It doesn't matter what's against us. We think we know what's right. We want to uh, be able to plot, taking the North School image, a, a straight course in our life. We long to be in control. And it could be a case of uh, affirmation. So I want to uh, seek security in the time of pandemic and before and after in relationships. I want to seek affirmation in a relationship so I can get the love that I need and long for. But what happens when that relationship comes to an end? We feel crushed, we feel used, we feel abused, we feel overlooked. If you uh, build your life not on uh, a relationship but on success, what happens when it all comes crushing down? How will I justify myself then? What happens if uh, I want to build my security on money? If I just have enough money in the bank to pay the bills, that's one thing. But if I just have enough money in the bank for future security, no matter what the future brings, I'm safe and secure, and whatever changes in this world won't affect what's in the bank. But what happens when there's an economic downturn? If that's your security, what's in your pension pot or in your bank account, then it's not just a, a shame when there's an economic downturn. It can be shattering for your very life. Because we all long for security. We're all swimming in the swimming pool of life and we're looking to reach out for something. But everything is shifting and everything is moving. We want a better hope. We want a better security. And that's what the Bible speaks of. We, we've looked at different ones in this series. This is the last one. We looked at meaning. Where can we, where can we get a sense of meaning? Where can uh, joy and happiness be found? Where can uh, our identity be sourced and recognised and what does it mean to live in a better society anyway? We looked at that last week. That, that's inclusive and that's accepting. And underneath all of them, I think, is this theme of security. What does the Bible have to say about security? I want us to look at the book of Hebrews this morning. The book of Hebrews is written to uh, Christians whose life has been shaken to the very core. It's a book that may have been written by the Apostle Paul, may have been written by someone else, but they look at the difficulties of life and the writer says, no matter what is happening to you, there is hope that is certain, there is life that is secure. No matter what is taken away from you, no matter what is thrown at you, whether that be uh, literal fists 
or words of slander. The book of Hebrews has much to say about a future solid, secure, not buoyancy aid, but hope and a city that is eternal and that is certain and secure. There's real hope. There's certain lasting hope and a solid foundation for you to build your life upon and that can never be taken away, says the writer to the book of Hebrews. It's a better story that we long for and that I want us to look at. Look at this passage with me, please, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. There's lots of strange words. There's lots of Old Testament language that we're going to look at and that's very important to understand. But very simply, as we look at verses 18 to 21 and following, you need to look at a, a come word to understand the passage. Look at verse 18 and then look down to sentence to line number 22. 18 and 22, you see the same word come, but it's used in a very different way. Look at verse 18. You have not come. That's the first paragraph. You have not come to one place. And then sentence 22, you have come. Okay, so that's how the, uh, the argument is framed as we think about security. You've not come to this place, but you have come to that place. And the word in the original language is not just a, a journeying word. It's not just a change of logistics word or a traveling word. The word you have not come to and you have come to is a word that's only used in the context of worship. It's a really important thing that's been spoken about it. It's got deep religious overtones in verse 18 and verse 22. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, we've all got a, a, a fundamental religious default position, a way that we approach God. And often it's on our own terms in our own way. Often, if you're not a Christian, you might use this sort of language. You might say, well, my life can be summed up is I'm just, I'm just doing my best. I'm going to try my best and I'm going to work my hardest. I'm going to raise my, if I've got a loved one, I'm going to care for her well. I'm going to care for him well. If I've got the, and given the privilege of kids, I'm going to be the best mum. I'm going to be the best dad that I can be with the resources that I've got. I'm just going to do my best. And no one's perfect, but I know that I will do my best and I certainly am better than, insert name here, <laughs> That's often how it works. We just compare and we contrast. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to do better than them. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try my hardest. And look, they could try a lot harder. So we just compare. And we have a religious mask, whether we're a Christian, whether we follow a different religion, or whether we say we've got no formal religion at all. We're just going to do our best. That's our religion. Look down at uh, sentences 18 to 21. In, in verses 18 to 21, you can see this language that's describing an Old Testament event where the Israelites are brought to a mountain that you can see on the screen, to Mount Sinai. They've been rescued by God from under the, the heel and under the bondage uh, of a Pharaoh who is very cruel and unkind to them in a place called Egypt. And God brings his people to a mountain called Mount Sinai and there God says, come near and I will speak to you. And God in his glorious presence descends from the heavens to Mount Sinai, that's in verses 18 to 21. There's a language that's used there to make a specific point. God's glory descends on Mount Sinai. God speaks from a glorious cloud. And Moses, the servant of God and the leader of God's people, writes down God's words in what's known as the Ten Commandments. You can see that in Exodus chapter 20. But here's the catch. 
as, uh, as Moses went up the mountain and as God's people were told to draw near, they were coming near to the holy mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And as they drew near, the mountain literally shook because of the glorious, majestic, holy presence of God. At the voice of God, God's mountain was shaking so that anyone who touched the mountain would lose their life. It's that serious a thing to come to the presence of God. And the writer, I don't know if you noticed, there are seven, there are seven phrases and words that are used in the sentences 18 to 21 to describe the experience that is awe-filled as the Israelites draw near to the presence of God. Look at verse 18. You have not come to what they came to. And here's the list. They came to a mountain that can't be touched. They came to a mountain that was burning with fire, that was darkness, that was gloom, there was a storm, there was a trumpet blast. There was a voice that was so overwhelming they couldn't bear to hear it. Seven phrases that describe a historical event in the Old Testament that you can read of in the book of Exodus. And when God spoke from the mountain, they didn't say, that's great, we want to hear more of you. Sorry, God didn't hear you, can you turn it up a bit? They didn't say anything like that. When they heard the voice of God, they were shattered. They were shaken to the very core. They said, stop, we can't take anymore. We don't want to come close to you. They couldn't take it. And throughout the Bible, that's the theme, whether you look at uh, the book of uh, Exodus or Isaiah, whether you look at uh, the book of Job or into the New Testament and people coming before the presence of God. When God turns up, it shatters people, it shakes people to the very core. Your pretense just falls apart. Your religious mask has to fall. When you come into the presence of God, you are shaken to the very core of your being and your person, and all the pretense is no more. But look at how the passage continues in verse 22. In verse 22, you see the second come. But it says, you have not come to Sinai, but you have come, sentence 22, to somewhere completely different. The writer now flips the image. He's making this huge contrast between you haven't come here, but you have come here. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of approaching God. It's a new way of living and knowing who he is. And there's three hallmarks to this life, this new way of existence. Verse 22 the unshakable life, if we've looked at the shakable life, verses 18 to 21, verse 22 begins to describe the unshakable life. And it's about future and identity and joy. Here's the first one, an unshakable future. Look at verse 22. You have come. You have come to the city of the living God. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of many names. You've come to the city of the living God. Now, this is big, broad brushstroke. This is saying the whole of the Bible is about the tale of two cities. We thought about this when we looked at the book of Revelation. Beginning in Genesis, climaxing in the book of Revelation. Central to the book of Isaiah, right in the middle. The Bible is about the tale of two cities. There's the city of man, and there's the city of God. There's the city of man living in the world, and it's based on these great big themes of and men and women who want to make a name for themselves. Men and women who want to make much of themselves. Men and women who are determined to make a name for themselves at the expense of anyone or anything else. 
And it's based, this kingdom, the kingdom of man and women, is based on the principle of pursuing personal power and happiness above everything else. What matters is you and your agenda, me and my agenda. Number one is the priority. That's the city of man, and then there's the city of God. The city of God is exact opposite. When men and women build their city, God, God alone builds his city. And it's about his glory and it's about his name. He lays the foundation. It's uh, based in the future. It's going to be a new human society with God at the very centre. It's going to be a new, uh, a new order to things, not based on personal power and reputation, but on peace and joy and justice. And because God is involved, it's guaranteed. And the Bible, like a, a brilliant seamstress, God takes these two stories, the, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the city of man and the city of God, and it's right the way through the Bible from beginning right the way through to the end. Now, we are in unprecedented times. You can count how many times I'm going to use that word, like Boris will this week, I'm sure. And you might think the UK, the UK is experiencing some pretty interesting challenges at the minute, and it is. But let me take you back to the 4th century. Not, the main concern was not energy supplies, it was about paying bills. The main concern for Christians in the 4th century was the barbarian horde. The barbarian horde came and destroyed Rome, something that would never ever happen. But the barbarians came in the 4th century and they ransacked Rome. The glory of Rome that was going to be the eternal city was no more. And the barbarians ruled the world. And Christians wrote down these words. Civilization is over. The barbarians have sacked Rome. But a man called Augustine, who was a Christian in the 4th century and thereabout, wrote these words. Don't be downhearted, he said. Don't be downhearted. Wait a minute, to paraphrase, he said, you've forgotten You've forgotten the city of God. You're downhearted. You think Rome has been destroyed. You think God has left his, the building and left his throne. But the city of God, that city that God is building, can never be destroyed. It can never be sacked. It can never be bombed. It can never be burned. The city that God is building is far greater than Rome. So rest assured that you are eternally safe and eternally secure. Look at sentence 22. It says you have come to it. You've come to the city. So that's uh, speaking in a past tense. That's saying you've already arrived. You're already there. How is it possible to experience a future reality of a city that God is building? How can you do that and experiencing that joy right now? The reality is the church. When you have a group of Christians who gather in a small number or a large number, who gather together to worship God, people, men and women, boys and girls, that have experienced the grace of God, that is like a show home, a foretaste of heaven. It's the foretaste of the kingdom of God, heaven on earth. It's imperfect, but it's genuine. It's a foretaste, and it will pass on into eternity, but you're a citizen of that heavenly city, and you can taste the joy of that, right now. It's imperfect but it's real. As you come in contact with other Christians and you sing God's praises with or without a mask. You're engaged in ministry to senior citizens or to younger boys and girls and it's a joy to do that. 
because we've come to that heavenly city and we know the security of being part of that city even now. It's an unshakable future, says the writer. But then there's also, verse 22, an unshakable joy. Do you notice this, uh, this language of thousands and thousands of angels, not angles, angels in joyful assembly? Look at the contrast. The writer says in verses 18 to 21, God's glory is so much that you can't come near it. If you come near to God without any protection, you will be destroyed. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. And now we're told, you have come. And how does that work? Is it a mistake? The royal presence of God, the face of God that we were made for, to enjoy and to know throughout all eternity, that royal presence, there's always angels involved in the Bible. You can think of the story of, of Jacob, Jacob's ladder, ladder, and he saw angels ascending, going up to heaven, and descending, coming down to earth. Think of the book of Isaiah, there's angels everywhere. Think of the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. There's angels, the Garden of Eden, there's angels. Uh, Revelation speaks of angels around the presence of God. Angels, the angelic host, always are there to celebrate the goodness and greatness of God. You see what the writer is saying? When you draw near to God in the Old Testament, there was no hope for you. You needed someone to come and intercede for you. You needed someone to protect you and rescue you. God's glory needed to be enjoyed in a different way. Because when you enjoy God's presence, it's happiness, it's joy. It's rejoicing, it's, it's pleasure. Nothing else will satisfy you like knowing who God is. But there's this great tension. You can't come, but now you can. You haven't come, but now you will come. It's an unshakable future and the joy that knowing God intimately and personally alone can offer. You can experience some of it now, but in the future, there'll be joy to the max, joy unending, joy undiluted. But that's not all. There's also an unshakable, an unshakable identity. Here's the third thing. You've come to angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's talking about an unshakable identity, whose names are written in heaven, the church of the firstborn. That's just confusing language. I don't understand what that means. This is what it means. We all try to build our identity on something. I'm a great worker. I'm a great owner. I'm a great server. I'm a great giver. I'm a great knower. But here's some, a real source where you can get your identity. You are part of the Christian. You are members of the church of the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, in the first century uh, AD, the firstborn would get all the goodies. The firstborn would get all the toys. If you were the firstborn son, you got everything. All the inheritance was yours. If you were the second, all tough cheese. You got very, very little. But if you were first, you got everything. You inherited everything that your mum and dad owned. They got virtually all of it. It doesn't matter how they lived. It doesn't matter what they did. They got the lot. And then here the writer takes up that cultural knowledge of the first century and says, your names are written in a place that will never perish, spoil or fade away. You are members of the church of the firstborn. In other words, all the inheritance of God comes to you. 
You're a member of the firstborn church. You've got your inheritance and it's guaranteed. You don't need to go looking for it in a relationship or success or sport or service. It's given to you by God's grace. And here, by God's grace, is a, a source of joy and lasting stability that we reach out for like a swimming float in from different things that they kind of bobble away from us. But here is something that will last and something alone that will satisfy. You're a member of the family of God. You're accepted because of what God will do in his son. And if we grasp that, then we can have our deepest wounds healed. We can be accepted. We can have our past mistakes forgiven. Our past failures will be in the past rather than affecting our futures. It's an unshakable identity. Verse 22, you have come. You have come. It's about future. It's about joy. It's about identity. But how so? How come you can go from verse 8, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. How come? Look at uh, verse 27 with me. There's great contrast between what's shakeable and unshakable, what is temporary and what's lasting. And the whole of this passage is actually about the sober topic that the Bible speaks about, of the judgment of God. God's judgment is seen in verse 27. In verse 27, it describes how God will judge the world. He will shake the world like a, someone looking for gold, panning for gold, and they shake and they agitate what they've got from a seabed or a, or a riverbed. They're looking for what's lasting. They're looking for gold among the dross. Is there anything eternal of worth in the world, says God, as he shakes the world? But the trouble for me and for you is, if God were to shake me, if he were to judge me, there wouldn't be anything left. But look at verse 24. How can we get all these things that we long for? How can we find out the meaning to the world? How can we uh, long for the identity? Where, where do we keep going searching in different places? Where can we get lasting, secure identity and happiness? What's the foundation of an inclusive society? It's here once again. Verse 24 says, Jesus. How can you come into the presence of God because of Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant? Here's a new way for God to relate to us. And it's in Jesus who's the source of hope. It's in Jesus who's the source of identity. It's in Jesus that we are rescued. It's in Jesus that we are accepted. It's in Jesus that everything that is God's become ours because everything that's ours has become his. It's Jesus it's a very short way of saying the gospel. Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, what's all that about? In Matthew 27, when Jesus is on the cross, you read these words. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Jesus cried out these famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you read on at that moment when Jesus gave up his life, it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. There's an earthquake, there's darkness, there's gloom. Rocks splitting apart. Just like you had at Mount Sinai. God is being ripped apart to provide a new and living way 
that we can base our lives upon, that we can get to know him in an intimate way that we rejected in our first parents in the Garden of Eden. We thought last week, well, hang on, aren't all religions the, sh- the same? Aren't they the, 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 the same, uh, same uh, destination, different words for the same thing? Well, here's the only religion that says the judge of all the earth came down not to uh, give out judgment, but to bear it. Here's the maker of all the earth. He came down on the cross and he was shaken so that we might live an unshakable life. No other religion claims that. Nothing close to it. And here's the writer and he wants to say this, I think. Because of what Jesus has done, God's presence, his glory, his majesty, his holy nature, that very thing that used to be fatal to us, that it would consume and destroy us because of our rebellious hearts, When it comes into your life now, because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, it only consumes our flaws. It only consumes the parts of us that need to go away. Jesus, verse 24, is the mediator of a new covenant. So we no longer need to be afraid of the future. We don't need to be afraid of that final judgment day. But the heavens will be shaken. But we won't be if we're in Christ, says the Bible. We have nothing to fear because Jesus was shaken for us. We can be part of a kingdom that will not be shaken. Talk about security. Jesus was shaken so that we won't have to be. And so all the unprecedented times in which we live, all the ways we look for a meaning and hope, security in other places other than Christ, all those will fade away. But Jesus invites us to an unshakable future, an unshakable joy, and gives us an unshakable identity.